Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams podcast, this week featuring my very special guest, David Dorr. David's the founder and the CEO of Coro Global, and he's also the CIO of Dorr Asset Management. Now, this was, for me, a hugely enjoyable conversation, and we dove into an awful lot of things. We dove into the world of distributed ledger technology, uh, as David, who's a huge believer in DLT, explained why he thinks Bitcoin is soon going to be obsolete along, according to him, with the vast majority of the other tokens, but that something hugely transformative will rise from the ashes. David has a healthy skepticism about much of the crypto space, despite his being well-versed in the technology, which is one of the main reasons that drew me to want to talk to him. And in this conversation, he lays out the reasons for his unwillingness to buy into the current narrative that it's Bitcoin that will ultimately be the last coin standing. Based on years of experience in fintech, David also explains why and how correspondent banks work and why they're so important to the crypto ecosystem. We also talk about Tether, and David explains why he believes it, like me, to be a gigantic fraud. And he also explains why he believes tokenless blockchains are the future. So, with all that being said, please enjoy my conversation with David Dore. David, welcome to the podcast. It's uh, it's really good to have you with me. Thank you, Grant. Appreciate you uh, having me on your show. Yeah, there's so much to talk about, and I, I'm interested in your background. I'm interested in your views on not just the macro world around us, but uh, distributed ledger technology and the cryptocurrency space. But before we get into all that, just give people your background because it, it's kind of varied and interesting, and, and I think it'll help frame the discussion nicely for people. Yeah, so I, I do have, uh, thanks to just kind of a haphazard career, I, ha- I have an unusual background that intersects with uh, 25 years in capital markets on the global macro side, originally as a commodity trader, grown up as a teenager in the Midwest, that also dovetails or intersects with the financial technology space, which is you know, more popularly known as, as fintech these days. And within that, that's the field that I've worked in. And uh, as I like to say, I know a lot about a little. Um, if you were to take me out of either one of those fields, I, I could barely tie my shoes. Yeah, it, you know, it's good that because Wall Street is populated with people who, who know a little about a lot. It's far <laughs> more dangerous, trust me. That's true. That's true. Let's talk about your finance background first, mm-hmm. and then we'll get into the fintech stuff. Because you, you know, you're like me, a macro guy, more or less. Yeah, that's right. So just kind of a, a little bit of history on it. Started off as a teenager trading uh, commodities in the Midwest with my younger brother. And uh, we thought that we were going to be maybe the next, you know, Soros and, and Rogers. Uh, and we moved to Miami in 2001, originally to set up a, a global macro hedge fund. And uh, it's kind of funny, if you were to look at our proposal and our pitch deck back then, it looked like two kids with crayons had put it together. But uh, we, we thought it looked cool. And coincidentally, around that same period, there was a, uh, a growing asset class that was gaining interest on Wall Street, which was the secondary market for life insurance. And as we happened to be going out and presenting our, our new startup hedge fund to prospective investors, there was a financier that recruited us and said, hey, look, this is a cool idea, kids. Why don't you put that on pause for a moment? Come work in this industry. You can make some great money. The commissions are amazing. It's a new asset class. 
and there's some good opportunity. And this is a really important part of our career because a lot of what you're going to hear with, with my perspective today comes from this unusual background, this kind of, you know, departure outside of macro and into uh, fintech in a different asset class. And so, of course, the first thing that my brother and I asked uh, this gentleman, we said, well, what is the secondary market? It's the secondary market for life insurance specifically, a very unusual asset class, a little bit morbid, if you will, because effectively banks were buying pools of life insurance policies and they're betting on when people are going to die. And that's just how it works. Yeah. <laughs> so it was an interesting time because at this point, that industry was, for the most part, unregulated. And the broker commissions, like a lot of aspects in, in all financial markets, were just completely enormous, as much as taking 30, 40, 50% uh, commissions on client transactions with no disclosure rules whatsoever, <laughs> right. of course, right? And it was just kind of the wild, wild west. And, and my brother and I, we got in there. And the first thing that we noticed, Grant, was that when you look at life insurance as a market, Life insurance is a multi-trillion dollar market, just in the US and certainly globally. And obviously capital markets are multiples of trillions of dollars. But these two markets, the way they interact with each other is like two different language sets. And as a good example might be uh, Spanish and Japanese. They're just structured very differently the way the yeah, languages yeah. work. And we realized that the opportunity was we were sitting right in the middle of these two worlds coming together and nobody had realized it yet. So in 2004, we started developing the first electronic trading platform for that industry. And our prediction was that regulators were going to come in, clean up the industry, start requiring disclosure, transparency for customers, and it would become a much more heavily regulated market. And as it did, that would also fuel a shift into larger institutional participation. And that's effectively exactly what happened. And since we were the only guys in the space with any type of trading background, we took advantage of that. And we said, well, there's a lot better way to move these instruments around. And so we created a company which was called Life Exchange, launched that formally in 2005. And we became the first electronic trading platform for the life insurance industry. And this was, to be clear, this was a institutional trading platform. So yeah. So all, all our clients were big insurers and predominantly you know, Wall Street investment banks. And what was interesting about that, and the reason I share this background, because this will lead into our, our views on the other stuff, is that it's an interesting phenomenon to come into a new asset class, create an exchange, and then create liquidity for that, right? So these are kind of things people are learning about in the crypto space right now, right? <laughs> the, I'm sure the pennies are dropping in everybody's listening. Yeah. The same way they are in mine. <laughs> exactly. And so you, you realize that it's not the uh, Kevin Costner field of dreams equation where you build it and they'll come. Liquidity is a very funny animal. And just because you have an exchange and you make something that's cool and it's got a nice user interface doesn't mean that uh, you have any type of liquidity to enjoy there. Liquidity is a very funny beast. And, and the way that you, you bring that together is an, an, an important. So this was fascinating for us because we worked in a strange asset class and having built a, it was a very regulated arena too. I think at our peak, we had something like 127 licenses in the United States. And so we got very good. Part of my brother and I's macro background was plotting regulatory trend paths. We feel that that's something that people look at policy and macro, but plotting regulatory trend paths is a really 
niche area where you, you can get some alpha, if you will, you know, to, to use an overpopularized term, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> alpha for whatever that's that term is worth these days. Um, so that was our viewpoint. And then you learn about this kind of internal plumbing. So you learn what it's like to deal with regulators. Since we had so many, I was on the phone with regulators practically, you know, felt like a daily basis. And you learn a lot about how they think the mistakes that they make, what they're trying to do as good human beings themselves. You know, we tend to think, uh, you know, as free market proponents that, you know, regulators are just pains in our ass. And there's plenty of that too, but they also, there's a lot of them that are trying to do good. They yeah. want to protect the consumer. They're not trying to get in the way of markets. They just want to have clear frameworks and that's fair. So we worked in that space. That was a background. Worked in that space uh, until 08, 09. We all know what happened in 08, 09. Coincidentally, our three largest clients were Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and AIG. So, uh, right. so when people talk about living through the financial crisis, we were in front row seats to that, no watch, watching our clients blow up. Uh, we did survive as an exchange, but it didn't really make any difference since our clients had died off and the volume for that asset class you know, dropped off uh, dramatically. Uh, so we returned to our, our macro roots and we set up a multifamily office that that's door asset management. That's the one that's you know been in Cayman for the last decade. Mm -hmm. And we serve primarily international families for Latin America. So that's the background, that, that context. So having been in macro, being in fintech, that's what led us, the same time we we're setting up the family office, to have abundant curiosity when Bitcoin first came out. Yeah. And we felt that we had a better than average, you know, we're not computer scientists, but we felt that we had a better than average understanding with how to dissect Bitcoin when it came out. And look, I wish I could tell you I was a clever guy that we just punted on Bitcoin and, you know, then I'd have a 120 foot, you know, yacht parked over there in, uh, in the harbor, but I don't. And the reason for it is because we felt that there were some very, very key fundamental flaws, both technologically as well as economically. So that was the background. Well, we can jump into what some of those is for. Well, look, there's, I mean, there's so many places we can go with this. <laughs> yeah. That's why it's so, it's so fascinating, you know. I, I guess let's go back to that reinsurance exchange. Um, mm -hmm. Because as I said, you know, as you're talking me through that journey, the, the pennies are dropping left and right in my head. And I'm sure everyone listening to this is, is recognizing exactly what you just laid out there. And when you come onto the crypto space, the beauty of Bitcoin is I guess it's simplicity, right? It's not complicated. So when you talk about how you're not a computer scientist, the beauty of Bitcoin is you don't need to be a computer scientist to understand the design, to understand what it can do and the promise that it offers. You know, I, I found that for me, it came from my background in the precious metals industry. I recognized it for what it was immediately. But let, let's talk about those concerns and those potential flaws because, you know, that's where, to me, the interest lies. You know, I get the promise, I get the dream, I get the ideal. I've watched that ideal become less and less important and the importance of number go up becoming more and more important. Um, right. And so I'm, you know, I'm always interested to talk to people like you who understand the technology, who understand what it's supposed to do, but have those concerns. Because look, there are any number of people I could sit and chat with that will tell me Bitcoin is the next big thing and it's going to rule the world and you need to buy someone. That's, that's great. And there are plenty of venues that people can go to to hear that. Mm -hmm. I'm much more interested in the people that say, yeah, that can happen, but here's the other side of that. So walk me through your journey with Bitcoin in mm -hmm. particular from the beginning and then those flaws as you kind of dug into it, how you saw them arise. Yeah. So one of the first things that I always like to share with people is that I think that it's important, whether we're talking about Bitcoin or any technology, is to 
to come back down to earth and the way that we would evaluate any technology. In the example that I, I always like to give people is that, look, Grant, if you and I whipped out our mobile phones right now and we were going to have a debate whose mobile phone was better, we just get on Google, Google the specs, and either yours is better or mine's better. And that, that, that's the end of it. You know, one year AMD's microchip processor is better, next year it's Intel's, but there's not really a lot of debate in the technology community about those things from headphones, microchips, or anything else. However, it's incredible that that conversation is not taking place and has not been taking place hardly at all in the crypto space. And there's a lot of reasons for that, I believe. But the first thing that we did is we, we said, well, well, let's look at this. When I criticize Bitcoin, the way that I, I frame it, because I know I'm sure I'll get a ton of hate mail and, and, and oh, yeah. tweets and everything else. If you don't, let me know. I'll send you some. Just yeah, to yeah you please. Some. I would feel bad if I I'd feel <laughs> bad if I didn't, because I'm super critical of Bitcoin um, and I'm going to break down why. The problem is we need to put Bitcoin in its proper context. It's a good first draft. That's it. Outside of that, it's garbage. And so we have to begin at the, the beginning of the roots, right? Why should any of us care about a distributed ledger, right? At the end of the day, Bitcoin is actually two technologies that are glued together. One is the distributed ledger aspect. So it's this ledger that records transactions. And so let's, let's talk about that for a second. So this ledger, who gives a shit? Why does it matter? What's the difference between using that or an Excel sheet? Okay, so we started on Excel sheets for recording transactions. Okay, great, Excel's changed all our lives. Any of us that work in finance and many other aspects, you know, Excel's changed our lives. We now live in an environment where many of us will use Google Sheets or they'll use the online version of Excel where they can collaborate. And so you have additional transparency and collaboration is that synced up, or you might keep an Excel sheet in a Dropbox file that's synced up mm -hmm. elsewhere. So we can see how cloud services plus data has also changed our lives. So going back to mobile phones for a moment, if, if you were to throw your mobile phone in the ocean there, and uh, the next day you needed to go get your a new phone, you wouldn't lose any of your data, thanks to it being backed up in the cloud. So it's pretty easy and logical for us to understand why a ledger that's super resilient because it's in a whole bunch of places and has a nice audit trail, we could see a lot of use cases for that. That's fair enough, okay. So we understood the ledger aspect. Now, Bitcoin's unique in that it solved a complex computer science problem and said, how do you sync things up in a potentially untrustworthy network? And at the same time, how do you put that data on there? And also let's be a cool payment network simultaneously and digital money. Right. Well, that's a tall order. And what I would submit to you is that that's too tall an order and that it's not even necessary to try and be all those things all in one shot. That, that doesn't serve anybody. And so fundamentally, you have a ledger, the blockchain of, of Bitcoin, glued together with a token. And, and what we're going to talk about through this today is that tokens are broken. That's what we like to say in our office. Tokens are broken. If it has a token, run the other way. You're already dealing with old technology, and that technology itself is not productive. So here's the examples that I use. If we have a pure ledger where we're recording things, and when I say things, you can record it whatever you want. Let's say that I'm FedEx sure. and I can see the use case for recording shipping packages. Okay, great. That's a great use case for a distributed ledger system. Would I care about a token? Absolutely not. In fact, I go further than that. Not only do I not care about a token, I prefer not to have one. 
There is no way economically that adding that token makes my life easier. The same way that if you were required to use a token every time you typed into an Excel cell on your sheet, that that would benefit you. It's the same logic, okay? So we have a perfect use case there for recording things. Now, let's jump over to the idea of this token aspect, the second piece of the Bitcoin technology, and that functioning as digital money. Remember, we're talking about, we haven't even got into the economics of whether, you know, a digital money or gold and how those hold up. We'll get to that later. But just this thing that's supposed to be digital money, let's give it the benefit of the doubt. Even if it were, would that be desirable to have it glued to the ledger? Okay. Meaning that you have to have one to use the other. They're not broken apart. Okay. And that's because this was an early draft. Well, a good analogy for this is ATMs. So ATMs are a network, just like ledgers. And if you were to go from, you know, your one bank to the other and withdraw your money, you're able to do that thanks to the ATM network. However, if that network were glued to your money and just the fluctuation of that network in the moment, let's say you want to withdraw $200. You punch that in and the ATM, ATM spits out $140 or $370. You would find that dysfunctional. So the point being is that even if something's going to be digital money, you wouldn't want it glued and fused to the ledger. You might want to record it on the ledger, but you wouldn't want it fused to the ledger. So, so it's like a conjoined twin. And our first observation from day one was that that's not functional. And that was our core thesis. Now, we added on top of that the thesis that, you know, Bitcoin is certainly not gold because unlike gold, there's no barrier to entry for creating a competing digital currency. Mm -hmm. And of course, now we know that that's the case. There's been tens of thousands of them, you know, created since then. And unless we get hit by a meteorite that's going to introduce some sort of new precious metal, the limit for precious metals is the periodic table. And so that's a, that's a huge, huge difference that people don't really appreciate. I could care less if Bitcoin's got 21 million coins or 21 billion coins. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So that's a big deal. So our opinion was, first of all, the technology is going to need to evolve. The idea of having distributed ledgers is smart, but it needs some iterations to get past this. And it needs to break free from tokens so that you're just left with a pure ledger. And whether you want to experiment with creating digital money, and let's see what happens in free markets for that, or you want to record FedEx packages, or you want to record gold, like we do over at our FinTech Coro, you now have a clean basis to do so. Well, the good news is, is in approximately 2014, IBM and Hyperledger resolved that problem. We didn't know who or how, we're not computer scientists, as we said, but our thesis was that somebody's gonna crack that nut and IBM and Linux, they did. And so they created Hyperledger and Hyperledger was the first blockchain that no longer required a native token. Huge breakthrough. And it's not a coincidence, Grant, that when you look at SWIFT's GPI program to get to real-time settlements, that they chose a version of Hyperledger to start building their real-time payment system. So now you're left with clean rails. This makes sense. So I'll just kind of pause there in case there's any questions about that. That's such a core piece is that once you realize that, then everything from Ethereum to all these other things where the token is stuck to the network, you start to realize that's a huge hole. 
huge hole. Well, look, it's yes, I, I agree. It's a huge hole, but it's also a huge opportunity for people to use it as, uh, you know, as a casino chip, right? And, Correct. And to, and, to, and to try and trade these things around and make money. So that, and, but let's put that aside for mm-hmm. a second. And, and I want to go back to your initial thoughts about this, because what's always puzzled me, and the reason I'm, I'm so happy to be having this conversation is, I, you know, I have so many questions about Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, ledger technology that I just haven't had answers to. And when I, one of them has always been, look, Bitcoin, I get how beautifully elegant it is, mm-hmm. but people in the technology space seem to have embraced this in what to me is a very unusual way in an industry that is built around constant iteration and improvement. Correct. To see the way this has been grasped and you know held up like this is it, this is the one technology and everything else that comes after it pales into insignificance. I just, I've always found that to be such a, a, a logical disconnect between for that community to me. Have you thought about that? Or have you had those conversations with people? Oh, I've had, Grant, I've had tons of them. And I, <laughs> I found it just outright perplexing because, you know, on one side I can say, look, you, you and I were macro guys. Like, okay, well, this is a 99 type environment. And just like, you know, the anything with .com, you know, had a bunch of money fed into it. But what I don't, think is similar to 99 is that very smart money, macro money and, and others, there's just no depth of thought. And that's, that's troubling and unusual. And I found when I talked to him, like I've talked to a lot of the crypto funds and uh, they run out of the room by the time I'm done and they don't want to hear anymore because I'm blowing up their, you know, their fund thesis. And, and my question to them is, you know, my job is having come from being a career trader is strong convictions loosely held, right? Yeah. So I'm fine changing my mind and I'm, I'm totally cool being wrong. I no issue with that. And I always tell them like, what am I missing? You know, I feel like the, the dumb poker player at the table, right? That's, that must be the sucker because if you don't see him, it's got to be you. And every time I prod these guys to explain themselves in the tech, it just completely falls short. It, not one in a hundred that I've spoken to actually even understand the tech at all it's wild well you know look, I, I i put this down to in my head at least the fact that finance and dlt are two very different languages finance and yes. technology let's broaden it out yes. finance and technology are two very different languages and it's tough to be fluent in both yes. um and unfortunately one of the big things about finance types in, in my experience is they don't like to not appear to know what they're talking about. True. Right? It's, yep. it's, it's something that that culture is such that people are very reticent to say, I don't know. Let me get back to you on that. And I found that to be true all over the world for you know the best part of four decades. Mm-hmm. Not that inherently there's anything wrong with that. It's just that's the culture, right? Um, yes. But when I look at the technology side of this, I also am struck by the fact that the technology guys – have no real understanding how the finance industry works Spot because on. it it is arcane and innovative at the same time it's filled with regulations it's filled with rules it's filled with complex rules about how the game is played yes that when you look at these two sets of people coming together you have a group of brilliant technologists mm-hmm. who have come up with this new technology they take it to wall street they bring all the expertise with them, but what they run into are a group of people whose expertise 
is making money for themselves. That's right. And their clients, right? That's their expertise. That's right. And you are taking a group of people who are brilliant but naive in a field. Mm -hmm. You're bringing them into that field and you are given the keys to the kingdom here and that you can actually make yourself extremely rich by exploiting this technology and the people who are creating it. And no one really knows what you're doing except other finance types. And that's That's kind of... That's kind of the way I've looked at this. And, and that's, look, that's not to say um, everybody in finance is, is up to no good with this, not at all. I've, I've got some really good friends of mine who are very serious about this. And yeah. you know, I know they don't do these things lightly. Mm-hmm. But I just, I've always felt that there is this bridge from one to the other that once you cross it, you're you're not in Kansas anymore, Doc. <laughs> That's I, I, Grant, you nailed it. I mean, I don't, I don't think you could have explained it better. I, I, I completely agree. So let's walk through that because that that kind of brings us to to the evolution of of Bitcoin in particular and how yeah. it has captured the imagination both back in 2017, mm-hmm. which was a classic sign of Wall Street driven speculative mania. Yes. To today, which is different in some ways, it's more mature. Obviously, technology is more mature. The understanding of it's more mature. But once again, what we've seen between December last year and today is another similar speculative driven bubble Mm -hmm. that feels even more driven by, uh, I'll say Wall Street Mm -hmm. for, uh, as as an adjective to describe the people who are pushing this thing higher. How how have you seen that evolution take place and and what are your thoughts on it? I think that, so one of the things that was the same timing as 2017 was that that was the year of the initial coin offerings, which was a bonanza. And that was just a license or, or non-license to, to, to steal completely bananas, completely, completely bananas, period. Um, people raising money left and right, justifying all these, these strange projects and tokens and everything else. And, you know, we looked at that same thing and just said, wow, this is really getting out of control. You know, if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it probably is a duck. There was never a doubt in our mind that they were securities. I mean, we just looked like the, just, yeah. I, I, I don't even know why that was so hard for everybody else to come around to that conclusion that they are now. What's interesting that started in 2017 and has now taken on an extraordinary life of its own is that the marketing techniques that were coming out of 2017 pushing the the these icos was typical social media you know we're going to do an airdrop for a coin and we've seen a lot of that stuff since but you're now seeing there's full blown you know bot farms that just crank this stuff out fake, you know, Twitter accounts and social media accounts and everything else intertwined. It's actually extraordinarily sophisticated, uh, organized crime involved these days, more so than 2017. And, and I'll give you a great example of this. The, the best one that's, that's recent and will be familiar to everybody listening is NFTs. And, and here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about from the first moment that you heard about NFTs to the moment that everybody you know in your circle had heard about them. And I bet you it was like that. 15 minutes, yeah, 15 no, minutes. exactly right. I thought the same thing. What a fascinating phenomenon. That's not an accident. That's extraordinary coordination that did not happen by chance. That was not just, it went viral you know, in popularity and media picked up. That was an orchestrated, coordinated thing. 
And I think that that's very dangerous. I think that people should be paying very close attention to who's doing that, why they're doing it, and and so on. So that's a big difference for me, you know, versus the 2017, you know, period. Well, let's talk about that a bit more because it, it is interesting, right? The NFT thing, I don't want to say it came and went because it's, it's, it's obviously very new technology, but you're right, that popularity blew up and the Beeple piece and all the NBA top shots and all this stuff that was going on was you couldn't avoid it, right? That's you right. could not avoid the stuff. It was in your face no matter where you looked. That's now, when you talk about the organized crime aspect of this, you know, I find that interesting because I've recently written a report on Tether and we'll, we'll come on to Tether mm-hmm. in a minute. I think of that as disorganized crime. Yeah. But um, but it's it's interesting that those words are triggering words for many in the crypto community. It's an easy pot shot to take, right? And the answer mm-hmm. is always, well, how much organized crime is using <laughs> euros course. and dollars? And it's totally justified. I, I yeah. get it. Yeah. I get it. But the thing that's remarkable and the thing that my kind of journey down the tether rabbit hole has shown me is that what this world offers the opportunistic organized criminal yeah. is a landscape that he's probably never seen before. I mean, That's this is, right. it's such a target-rich environment here. It is. So when you talk about that side of things, you know, what pushbacks do you get from the crypto crowd that, that as you say, you do hold your beliefs mm-hmm. lightly? What have you heard that has made you pause and think, yeah, okay, maybe I'm a little too harsh on this? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I hear all the time that's that's pretty easy to to shoot down without disagreeing with it is what you just mentioned, is that people say, well, you know, there's so much money laundering in U.S. dollars and and euros. Nobody's denying that. There is. And there's tons of organizations and billions of dollars spent to combat that very laundering and terrorist financing. And, And that's why we have this giant infrastructure around that, for better or worse. And what's bizarre to me is that somehow just because it's also happening in another space that makes it okay. (laughs) And that, well, we still shouldn't, so we shouldn't worry about it in in this space. And I just find that such a bizarre argument. And I always respond, well, shouldn't we be concerned about it everywhere? (laughs) Whether that's taking place in crypto, uh, whether that's taking place in in dollars or or elsewhere, isn't that something in general that we should be trying to uh, eliminate and reduce? There are, what I do find too, is that it's your point earlier that there's finance and tech are two different worlds, I think is really noteworthy and worth repeating because I, I have met, there are sincere people from both sides. So yeah, sure, of course, yeah. Yeah, much like yourself, I've got good friends from the finance industry that are, you know, they're in it and they, you know, they believe it, but they don't understand the tech. And then I've met tons of really, really extraordinarily talented developers and programmers that are building cool stuff. They believe in it. They see there's a a future there. And so what I'd love to see is some stewards that can kind of help bring it all together and say, hey, guys, there are common goals here that I think everybody could agree on. And let's work towards those and let's cut out the bullshit. You know, this event we just had in in Miami, the Bitcoin conference there, I I don't even know where to start. What a circus. What is just a complete circus? And I I just, I I don't know. 
<laughs> just crazy. Well, it's, it's funny <laughs> when we talk about this it being fertile ground. You know, the reason mm-hmm. for that is it was interesting when you talked about the reinsurance business in the early mm-hmm. days. You described it as the wild, wild west, and that's always the case with new assets, right? Whenever mm-hmm. you get a new asset class, it is always the wild, wild west. And yes. and I've made this point before. You know, at some point a sheriff steps into town and mm-hmm. puts a badge on and starts throwing people in the jail, and things get cleaned up, and that. Mm-hmm obviously comes in the form of regulation when we're talking about financial assets. Mm-hmm. And it really seems recently as though this idea about regulation is starting to become a very important debate around all the cryptocurrencies. And when I look at it, I see a lot of interest from the regulators. And this is probably where we're going to get into Tether because a lot mm-hmm. of it seems to be calling Tether out by name, which mm-hmm. is probably right in, in my view. But this idea of regulation is important because it does give credibility to these things. Mm -hmm. When you look at that landscape, and obviously a lot of the serious um, Bitcoin crowd are embracing, at least (laughs) in public, the idea of regulation, Mm -hmm. as I think they should. But what difference does regulation ultimately make to this entire landscape? Yeah, the regulation will clean up a lot of stuff. It will flush out the bad guys. And most of the existing regulatory framework fits perfectly well for it. There was this belief, and and I've sat in many law firms with their newly appointed crypto attorneys right? and and said to them, like, we don't really need to adapt our laws. I mean, we have good laws for commodities. We have good laws for securities. We have good laws for money transmission. They're well-established. They're pretty well thought out and regulated. This isn't that complicated. And then they do this dance around trying to explain to me what a utility token is and that it's this new this newfound instrument and requires special regulatory oversight. So regulators, what I've seen, and I talked to regulators in my in this business as well, just like my last, a lot. So we are money transmitters at our company, Coro. Uh, we have a federal license underneath the U.S. Department of Treasury. Uh, so we're regulated by FinCEN and we're regulated currently in 31 states. They're getting really sophisticated. They're coming up the learning curve much faster than the crypto community would understand and probably be comfortable with. (laughs) So it is a good thing. There's going to be a lot of pain, in my opinion, that comes from that. And you're going to see uh, a lot of people doing perp walks. You're going to see the DOJ is going to ramp stuff up. Every single regulator across the board is taking enormous interest and they want to understand it. They're taking the time. The one thing that I've seen from all the regulators is that they're really deeply trying to understand it first. Because it's been so popular with the public, they don't want to rain on the parade. And the interesting thing is that we'll have better regulation because of that. Normally, regulators come in and they completely overregulate. The pendulum swings too far the other way. And it's just, you know, it's no fun anymore. But they're intelligently looking at things. And that will change the landscape. Ultimately, for the better, I think it'll only leave a very, very, very slim sliver left standing afterwards. I think every crypto exchange and, you know, without calling out names on on even the regulated ones, I think you're going to see them just melt to the ground. Well, it's it's interesting you you bring that up because um, when we talked about how the uh, NFT explosion was seemingly very well orchestrated, the other thing that's happened in the last two weeks is the the coordinated attacks against Binance, which mm-hmm. it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, frankly. Anybody that's mm-hmm. paying attention to this stuff, it should have been what took them so long rather than what exactly. the hell's going on here. 
But it's very clear to me, you know, we saw a couple of Fed governors call out Tether by name as a, you know, a material potential source of instability for the financial system, which was interesting. And since then, we've seen Binance. I mean, it seems like every single day there's another either country or payment system cutting off even, even, Binance. Even SEMA. When was the last yeah, time SEMA yeah, made, right? a, made a global yeah. announcement? <laughs> Absolutely right. For those of you who don't know SEMA, that's the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority. And, and David's right. They don't do their business in public at yeah. all. So it was very interesting. So let's talk about Tether. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've spent a lot of time reading this story and researching it. And I, I find it, I mean, truly fascinating it how is. this thing can have occurred the way it has. You know, I released a podcast not that long ago that went through the story, so we don't need to rehash it here. But just talk to me about your personal journey with Tether mm-hmm. and where you've got to with that and what you think is likely to happen next. Yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break my view into three components with the way that I look at Tether. One is from somebody that's regulated by SEMA, the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority over at our family office. I've been around offshore banking for a long time. So I know that from that side, I know the plumbing from the FinTech and then the regulatory aspect. So I am a money transmitter in my current FinTech. So I've got that perfect nerdy background (laughs) to to look at Tether with really, really, really clear eyes. It's not to, you know, to crap on the crypto community or anything else. It's it's looking at it with very well-trained eyes. And so the, the first thing I want people to understand, because if you wouldn't work in these spaces, it's fair that you wouldn't know. Okay. And the first thing that I want to explain to listeners is how correspondent banking accounts work. Yeah. So we have this view, you know, uh, normal people think of it, and we'll use Cayman as a fun example since, you know, we, we both, you know, live and do business there and, and Cayman gets, you know, a, a lot of harassment that truly it doesn't deserve. It's an amazing jurisdiction. I am a fan and, and I believe they do do a great job. Hey, it's the hardest place in the world I've ever had to open a bank account, believe me. Exactly. Exactly. It is way, way, way harder than anywhere else. But people have this view, whether we'll use Cayman Islands and let's say Switzerland, right? When they hear of, let's say, some bad guy or whatever else hiding a billion dollars, a billion US dollars in a Cayman account or a Swiss account, there's this view that that's sitting in that institution and that there's a vault with a stack of cash and that's being held in their name. No, that's an account at JP Morgan or Wells Fargo (laughs) that plays the correspondent account in the US and has the Fedwire account. And so those dollars are really actually sitting in the United States. And this is really, really important to understand as part of the plumbing. So when people talk about the reserves of Tether and you know, support, you know, purportedly being you know, held in, in Deltec in, in the Bahamas. In the Bahamas, yeah. Yeah. What they don't understand is that that ability to hold those has absolutely zero to do with Deltec's desire and has everything to do with the desire of the correspondent bank providing those services for those U.S. dollars, which is a U.S. institution. That is a U.S. institution in the chain. And even if they use some intermediary bank and you know, a Deutsche in between, somewhere there is a U.S. bank at the end of that chain holding that with responsibility to see who they're providing services to. And you you probably remember this a few years back, Grant, probably seven, eight years ago, you might remember Belize lost a good chunk of its correspondent account services. So people that had dollar accounts, they thought they were being cute and, you know, hiding or saving money there, 
those correspondent accounts got caught up and they were just, that was the end of that. <laughs> they were just stuck and right. no more anything. And that was because the US banks clipped those services. If you're a big bank, a US bank that provides correspondent banking, that's a high risk, low margin business. And another way to translate that is you don't have risk appetite. <laughs> And you're only going to provide that service to another bank that does an exemplary job of doing compliance. And you're going to do pop audit checks on that all the time. So I always start with that piece. This is important. So the journey with Tether was really interesting. So we followed, I followed Tether since their very beginning. And because it was interesting as we were, as we were building on a tokenless network and their idea of creating this tokenized dollar to reduce friction was pretty clever. I mean, yeah, it was a good idea. It was yeah. a good idea. It, it was a pretty clever idea. And I remember my first thought you know, in our office was, well, okay, so what they're effectively doing is they're saying to the exchanges, look, you're not bankable, so we will be. And all you're doing is you're just passing the AML KYC down the chain to, you know, no pun intended, but passing it down the chain to, to Tether, which means that all the AML KYC falls on Tether's head. And this is where it gets comical, right? So if that all then falls on Tether, and we're supposed to believe that people are just wiring money into Tether, you know, with reckless abandon, and that somehow their their bank where they're at, plus the correspondent bank are all perfectly comfortable with that, it's completely absurd to think that that would be okay. And as court documents show, it wasn't okay. They got one bank account. And this is the part where like, I don't understand how people even come out and defend Tether. Like, I mean, there's just example after example after example. And there's, you know, Amy Castor, Bennett Tomlin. I mean, the guys that have been tracking this stuff now and really documenting the chronology of it, it just been, they've done a spectacular job. Yeah, they really have. Spectacular job. They, 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 that, that whole crew deserves tons of credit. But the flaw was evident from the very beginning. Right. So you can you can see this rising and it's like this giant elephant in the room that just everybody's in denial. It's wide out in the open. It's blatant fraud and crime. They're not regulated. And one of my other favorite things, and Grant, you'll appreciate this, you know, being a financial markets guy is all the gymnastics from Tether and from and from proponents of Tether about their their audit. Yeah. This is, I wanted to get onto that. So I'm glad you've taken this. Yeah. Thing. I mean, it's like, look, folks, anybody listening here, let, let me break down how audits work. They're real simple. Don't ever buy the excuse that, okay, well, because it's they can't get an auditor because it's so sophisticated, the technology. You can absolutely get an auditor that's going to look at your bank account and they're going to- Well, gonna, they had one, right? Yeah. They had one who'd agree to Yeah, do. exactly. <laughs> the only thing the auditor is going to do is look at the bank account. They're not going to say anything else about the blockchain and they don't need to. They're just going to simply say, you got this, you've had this over this period. That's, that's, it's the most basic crap in the world. Any auditor in the world can do it. Any auditor that you pay would be more than happy to. And I understand that many wouldn't be comfortable then pairing that up with blockchain, but they don't need to, right? There's no need to do that if the only thing the auditor needs to do is just validate that it's there. Dell Tech could validate that it's there. And I mean, like really validate it. Like, let's see some account statements and, you know, this bullshit with the, you know, they have all this corporate paper. What corporate paper? Who's, well, who's trading that stuff? You know, where is it? Where, where, where are those trades going down? I mean, to me, it's just, it's a gigantic, gigantic, gigantic scheme in broad daylight. But from a mechanical perspective, mm -hmm. with the attestations they had done, you know, mm -hmm. where this money would come in 
the day before the attestation. <laughs> exactly. And on, on one occasion with Noble Bank would go out the next day. Yeah. Given what you've said about how the correspondent banks work, mm-hmm. how technically do they pull that off? How does that work? Well, I haven't had the the time, and it'd be interesting to hear what the you know Bennett and the other guys have looked at with Noble Bank. But my understanding, I believe Noble Bank's a, a Puerto Rican bank, and there's a lot of shenanigans that uh, you can pull off with PR banks because they're kind of quasi part of the U.S. Fed system and then outside of it at the same time. And so there's all sorts of interesting things that you can pull off there. And I think certain people would argue, and I'm not trying to put this on Noble without, you know, knowing better, but I think people have said that there are some questionable uh, ownership issues, even all the way to to potentially uh, Deltec. So I do believe that there's money that these guys have moved around. I mean, we know they did. Like there was real money that was moved around yeah. the hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. that, you know, got sent to the the, the Panamanian uh, crypto, part, capital, cool. cri- yeah. crypto yeah. capital corp, you know, laundering money there. And that just, you know, conveniently disappeared. So there is real money that's moved hands. And when real money does move hands, you can pay a lot of people in the, in, in the middle of that. And I think that that absolutely has taken place. Um, and that that's what they did. I think they did a you know two-step shuffle and hey, poof, there's the money on this day and the next day that it's gone. And those shuffles get harder and harder to do. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the point, right? The, the MYAG settlement, the requirements on the fine is, is irrelevant. I mean, everyone was pointing to the fine saying, well, look, they've admitted no wrongdoing. It's a tiny fine. Let's, let's yeah. carry on. But the teeth comes in the reports they've got to make for two years, which they're going to find increasingly more difficult to do, I suspect. That's right. We'll, we'll see. But, but let's, let's talk about why there is such a vested interest in waving all this off as FUD in the crypto community. Because no matter what you think, Tether is incredibly important to the crypto ecosystem. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about, about what that importance is and, and what potentially could happen if, for example, Tether gets shut down. Yeah, so, so Tether is a fundamental part of the crypto ecosystem. And this validates uh, just seeing the way that it flows between the exchanges validates a thesis that my brother and I have had since very, very early on about the crypto exchanges. And that thesis is that there is most likely an incestuous relationship between nearly all of the crypto exchanges. And one need only look at the convenient way that the USD-USDT pair remains at parity. It makes no sense. Absolutely none. I mean, as, as guys that trade, like there's no way that that just stays so strong and consistent. That's not some fancy ARB desks from Goldman Sachs's, you know, crypto trading arm. There's no way that's not being done without the assistance of the exchanges themselves. And that is a huge red flag. I think that it is concerning that you see Coinbase after their IPO bring Tether back into their ecosystem, knowing the risks that are there. There's no compliance officer in the world that would sign off knowing what Tether is. You just say, no, like we're just not going to have that. It's just not worth the risk. So that, that you know, begs tons of questions about that. The problem too goes further because Tether is the instrument of choice not only on offshore exchanges, but most importantly, every exchange that provides leverage. Yeah. And this is, again, it's one of those things that 
I get it. A lot of crypto retail traders, they, you know, they don't understand what happened in 08, 09. A lot of people think of the 08, 09 financial crisis as being a, you know, a, a housing related crisis. But, you know, if you work in that field, you know that it was a liquidity issue as the, the banks and the interdealer brokers, they start breaking down trades with each other and just said, nope, too much counterparty risk. And they couldn't take that short-term debt and roll it over. And so I think that everybody's very naive and misunderstanding that when Tether gets exposed, that all that leverage, there's no way that doesn't vaporize the system. There's just not a chance that it doesn't happen. And you're talking about exchanges too, like nobody knows what their balance sheets are. When you're using leverage, who's providing you the leverage? Like, how are you getting it? What's that credit facility look like? It, these exchanges aren't running credit desks. <laughs> I mean, this right. is just- well, And, and we're, we're not talking leverage. We're not talking two or three X here, right? Exactly. It's 100, 125 X. So these things, I think that you'll see, and, it, and it's comical too. Exchanges tend to shut down when, when crypto prices are falling. A yeah. billion dollars of Tether just happens to get injected to all the big exchanges. And the next thing you know, they're, they're all operational. I mean, come on. This just, it, it looks like what it is. So, yeah. yeah. Well, look, let's talk about the future then, because yeah. the one thing that's for sure is that distributed ledger technology is here to stay. I don't think there's any argument yes. about that. This is a proper technological breakthrough. It is. And once we get through this stage, the Wild West stage, once the sheriffs come in and do slap the badges on them and put people in jail, what does the future look like? What does DLT ultimately do for the world? And how, how do you see that going forward? Let's posit that Tether gets shut down. We mm-hmm. have a blow up in crypto. Yeah. The dust settles. What does the landscape look like? For me, in my view, I think that there's tons of use cases, obviously, for DLT. But the ones that come to mind for me is obviously working in the financial sector. Is I do think DLT will resolve with security real-time settlement. Settlement, yeah. And I think that that's so important for our financial networks, whether it's equities, currencies, or anything else. That will reduce friction dramatically and reduce counterparty risk. And that's a wonderful benefit to all of us. So you're talking about really anything that requires a network with resilience, you're going to have more resilience. So my last business being in life insurance, we had to maintain HIPAA compliant databases because life insurance has so many, you're dealing with thousands and thousands and thousands of gigabytes of medical records. Well, with these cryptographically secure networks, and by the way, they're not all cryptographically secure. That's a common error. It all gets promoted like it's cybersecure. It's not even, if only it were. But the good networks are, and the good networks have got really, really brilliant approaches to cryptography. By the way, that's something just as a good reminder for the audience. Crypto's original, that, that kind of shorthand was for cryptography, not for cryptocurrency. Crypto is for cryptography. And real cryptography is important. We need that in our day-to-day lives. And I think that you will see that become kind of like a, a sheath that like you have in, in neural networks for protecting data in a world that is becoming much less secure in many other aspects because of, of yeah. cyber attacks. So I, I think that that's a extraordinarily bright future with tremendous benefit to, to all of us. And with the cryptocurrencies, you, I mean, you talked earlier on about how you see most of them just vanishing. Yes. What comes in their place? Do Bitcoin and Ethereum survive or do they end up in a kind of in-house squabble about forks and the paths they're going to take and something else emerges in the rubble? How do you see those, the, the two main kind of bellwethers? I see that they could have a 
good future, just like a, a good pair of uh, Air Jordans from the 90s. Like they could have value and maybe a lot, but more as a collectible, almost more as the NFTs are being positioned these days than as any type of useful tool. I think that newer networks that have broken away from tokens will offer much, 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 much more value than what you're seeing now. And, and by the way, there's another interesting piece with that. Like when we talk about just the crypto trading, one thing that's really important for people to understand, just as we were talking about correspondent banking and everything else is specifically with crypto, it's important to evaluate crypto from an on-chain, off-chain perspective. And nobody wants to talk about that. The exchanges don't talk about it. All the, the, the hype folks out there don't want to talk about it. But on-chain means a transaction can take place on-chain. I have my Bitcoin wallet. I want to send you a Bitcoin to your Bitcoin wallet. Okay, well, Bitcoin can only process on-chain three to four transactions per second. And you know, like the network we use is capable of 500,000 transactions per second. I mean, there's just, there's no, there's nothing to do there. And that's why all the crypto transactions that you see, 99.9% .9 of every single crypto trade is taking place off chain, which means it's back in a centralized database, <laughs> just like a regular stock trade. So there's nothing interesting about it. The whole use case just completely, it's just, it's non-existent. So I think that that's a big deal. And unless they somehow miraculously resolve that. And I don't think that they will. And I don't think that they should. They'll just be digital collectibles. Like it doesn't make sense. Tech should iterate. That's yeah. what tech does best. The reason we have crappy banking rails right now is because it's a patchwork over 37 years, just in the United States of just tech patched on top of old tech. And now thanks to breakthroughs like DLT, there's actually a viable breakthrough where you can start fresh, but there hadn't been previous. And so you get a bunch of patches. So putting these, you know, as people like to call them with cool names, these layer two protocols and all this other garbage, like why go through that brain damage? Like there's, there's just already, there's tons of better tech, tons. You know, Bitcoin's over a decade old. Yeah, your phone's not 10 years old, right? right. So, so, so why are you going to use a 10-year-old blockchain? And in fact, the future is not even blockchain. There's other network types of DLT that are just far, 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 far better. Well, give me some examples because now, now you're taking me to places that I haven't experienced. <laughs> so one of the breakthroughs for, for us personally, when, as I mentioned, when we saw that Linux and, uh, and IBM had created the first tokenless network, we saw that as a, as a big breakthrough for DLT. And you'll notice I'm intentionally using the word DLT, distributed ledger technology, rather than blockchain. And, and they get used uh, interchangeably in the press and everything, but we need to think about it as DLT is an umbrella term, distributed ledger technology. Blockchain is just one type. And underneath blockchain, we have Bitcoin, Ethereum, than Hyperledger. So you could even see them in that order. So Bitcoin with a token glued to the network, Ethereum with a token glued to the network, but also adds some smart contracts, some very cool things, real contributions. So to be yeah. fair, there these are real technological contributions. We just need to put them in the right context. So then you have, uh, like I said, Hyperledger. So that's the blockchain side. Well, there's a whole nother branch of DLT, which is called directed acyclic graph. IOTA was an early example of that. Byteball was another one. And then the one that we happen to use, which is just fascinating and not to talk our own book. I think people should look at it independently because there's a lot of use cases for it. It's called Hashgraph. Yeah. And Hashgraph is just, it's, it's extraordinary. It's invented by a 
brilliant computer scientist named Dr. Lehman Baird. And when we came across it, we spent nearly a year doing due diligence on it and dissecting it. And, um, you know, without any embellishment, my personal opinion was that this guy had had the equivalent of an E equals MC squared moment in, in computer science. It was a big leap forward. And there'll be others. There will absolutely be others. But that's, that's why, here, here's the analogy I use, Grant. Let's use the example of Blockbuster and Netflix, right? So we know that Netflix kicked Blockbuster's ass in the DVD space, right? That was the technology place where there was the transition to Netflix with the mail-in DVDs. And now we know Netflix today and Netflix won. But if we could jump in a time portal and take Netflix as we know it today with this incredible high definition streaming content, and we could jump in this time capsule and go back to the 90s when Blockbuster was on every corner with their VHS cassette tapes, right? And we drop that back in, in time. How fast would Netflix kick Blockbuster's ass in a day? The, just that gap between the technology yeah. is so yeah. huge. There's no, there's not even the middle ground of the DVD, right? It's high streaming is just wow versus a crappy, you know, VCR. Well, this is what I try and educate people on is that that's effectively what's taken place in DLT that people aren't paying attention to. What exists today, technologies like Hashgraph and others are effectively high definition streaming. And then you're looking at Bitcoin, which is a VHS cassette tape. So it's just this dramatic arbitrage there in, in understanding that Silicon yeah. Valley and Wall Street are just overlooking. But, but again, that comes back to the idea that Hashgraph, you can't make money trading Hashgraph the way you can. Precisely. Bitcoin, right? and, Precisely. and that brings us back to that whole idea you about Wall Street taking this great technological advancement mm -hmm. and doing what Wall Street does, putting it through the Wall Street machine, turning it into you got uh, it. a security, a trade on <laughs> security, and, That's and right. everybody making an awful lot of money out of it. And the poor public getting sucked in at you know 20,000 back in 2017 and 60,000 this year. Um, listen, before we wrap up, and, mm -hmm. and I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this, David, I have to say, um, I want to just pick your brain, and I hate jumping around like this, but um, mm -hmm. I, 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 something I wanted to ask you about, and that's MicroStrategy. Because here is something that, to me, represents potentially the nexus of an awful lot of things in this space. You know, mm -hmm. I've, I've spent an awful lot of time talking about Elon Musk and mm -hmm. where I see his place as the kind of coming together, the nexus of so many both financial, cultural, um, social trends coming together in a man and a company and a narrative. And, mm -hmm. and I, I'm on the record of saying how I think that'll ultimately end. Yep. But when I look at Michael Saylor and, and MicroStrategy in the Bitcoin space, I see a similar thing. I see a similar mm -hmm. thing there in, 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 a, in a kind of an evangelist who has an awful lot of eyes on him, talks an awful lot of stuff that's sounds remarkably similar to Musk in the electric vehicle space. Mm -hmm. What's your take on the MicroStrategy phenomenon, what he's doing and how that all plays out? Because I'm fascinated by it. Yeah, it's it's deeply fascinating. And full disclosure on the portfolio side, I, I, I hold lots of short positions on MicroStrategy. Okay. Right, good. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, you have to give the man credit for his evangelism and and he's all in. I mean, to a degree that I just as is, is, is admirable, at least he's, I think that he has, he's been drinking a lot of his own Kool-Aid and he believes it now at this point. And I wasn't so sure that that was the case early on. 
I didn't necessarily feel that. Like I felt that he was exploiting the wave and like, okay, cool. Let me take my sleepy stock that hasn't had a, a, a nice, you know, bump since the, uh, since the last the cycle, <laughs> right. You know, when he also got in trouble for, you know, for, for some things there with the SEC, I think MicroStrategy will absolutely get roasted. And I think in 24 months, I don't even think it'll exist. I think he's going to blow up the entire company. And I think that that speaks to a whole bunch of interesting things as well. So I've heard your stuff with Elon and I completely concur with you. I love your thoughts on it because you look at it very kind of five dimensionally in, in all these aspects. I, I, I try. It's, it's tough to find that fifth dimension sometimes. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. But you do a great job kind of pulling those elements together to look at it. And and yeah, I think that we've, we, we're going to have to reflect as a society on like, what do we, you know, what, what are we doing? Like, where's this guy's, where are the board of directors for, for MicroStrategy and all of this right now? What, you know, the shareholders, like who's, who are these institutions buying these, you know, these notes and going to sleep at night and saying, okay, I'm, I'm a good fiduciary. It's mind boggling. But again, you know, we've seen these things in the past. That's not not completely out, outside of his historical uh, stuff. But yeah, I, I think that MicroStrategy doing that is completely insane. I mean, e- even if you believe that Bitcoin was good to go and do something like that with your, your treasury and then issue more stock. And I mean, I think he's done, I, I've lost track of him. <laughs> Frankly, I, I, yeah. I, I think he's done three three note offerings now and, and now he's got three, a, yeah. sh- a shelf offering for, for, for a billion dollars, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, just extraordinary, extraordinary. Uh, yeah, I, re- I read a great piece recently by uh, Doomberg on, mm-hmm. on Twitter talking about how the end game as he viewed it was this is great. Ultimately, Sailor will pledge all his stock as collateral. Yeah. Uh, you know, walk off into the sunset and, you know, one more power to him. I mean, that yeah. would be that would be uh, one of the greatest heists of all time if he can pull that little one off. But I suspect he <laughs> better look behind him if he tries that. Yeah. Well, David, listen, this has been uh, absolutely fascinating. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. It's so Thank good you. to speak to someone who is very pro the space, mm-hmm. but like me has questions and, and criticisms of it. And I think there should be a lot more of that. Um, just tell the listeners where they can follow you, hopefully not send you hate mail. Give them two different <laughs> addresses. One, an individual one for the hate mail. But, but look, I, think, I think everything you've said... Even though it's critical, it's not. You're not shooting from the hip. You've done spent a lot of time and work on this. And my only hope is the people that found what you said to be problematic or distasteful actually take the time to listen to the the thought behind it and hopefully engage you and and try and get some comfort around the areas you disagree. And so to tell people how and where they can do that. Yeah, absolutely. So so the best place to find me and and take jabs at me or say hello or anything else is you can find me. I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle's David Dor, D-A-V-I-D-D-O-R-R. Super easy to find me. And uh, yeah, so our company website, uh, our fintech company that uh, that I run is called Coro Global. And uh, you can look us up on the internet. It's coro.global, G-L-O-B-A-L. And uh, you'll find yeah, everything it's called, about- Coro's two R's, right? Uh, one R, C-O-R-O. Oh, one R, I beg your pardon. Yep. Okay. Yep, that's it. And um, love to engage with folks, always interested in, in, in different opinions and, and perspectives. And I uh, hope we can all come together as a community and uh, stay away from the Kool-Aid and, and build a better future together. Fantastic. David, thanks so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this. I hope we can continue this conversation uh, at a later date because it's going to unfold rapidly from here, I suspect. A- absolutely, Grant. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed it as well. And I hope to see you down in Cayman soon. You're welcome. Take all care. Right. See you soon. Take care. Cheers. 
Well, I promised you an entertaining conversation and I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, it's, I always find it interesting to speak to people that understand this new frontier of technology and are skeptical about it because that's, that's look, where I naturally find myself. I'm a skeptic about a lot of things. I'm still waiting to be convinced of some of the things that uh, many of my peers are currently convinced of and, and talking to people like David that have a greater understanding of the technology than me just reaffirms the reasons for my skepticism. I still don't know how this all plays out. It's conversations like this that help me try and figure it out and help me get a framework which will make me understand which way the, uh, the coin is liable to land. But I think it's invaluable to have conversations like this with people who, who understand the technology and who remain sceptical. So I hope you've enjoyed that. I'll be back again soon with another conversation. I will see you then. Thanks for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.